the Cricket Life Stories with me, Neil Kagram. Today, we're joined by Danny Morrison. How's things going? Neil, I've got to say, probably a bit better than uh, where you are. I'm down under here in, in Australia, and it's nice and warm. It's summer, but of course, you're in uh, the Northern Hemisphere there in the UK, and it's a bit chilly. So I'm happy to be in this part of the world. Yeah, no, very jealous. Let's take it all the way back for yourself. So you are born in Auckland. What first attracted you to cricket? Um, yeah, good question, because, you know, I was, you know, growing up in West Auckland, it was very much rugby union, rugby league, athletics, a bit of netball for the women, you know, not a lot, it was very much winter code, uh, and that's just your environment where you are, and then my parents split up in uh, the early 70s, it was around about 73, and then we moved in 75 to my mother's, uh, my, my mother's brother, my, my uncle, and he said, look, come over here, bring the kids, and we moved to Auckland's North Shore, where you were, you were sort of exposed more to different sports, water sports, um, you know, different sort of winter codes. And so from playing rugby as a little mongrel um, in the early mid 70s, um, mates that I hung out with played cricket and in the beautiful game, played soccer, played football. So um, in terms of that, I ended up doing a lot more of that, playing a bit from rugby to soccer um, and mixing a bit with that and then mucking down the park and things. But I suppose what ignited me to cricket, Neil, was um, the two great protagonists, Dennis Lilly and Richard Hadley in 1977. And they were at Eden Park, butting heads. And I saw, that was really the first time I'd seen it on TV up really close um, as an 11-year-old. I thought, gee, that looks cool. Shit, I want to do that. And then um, I remember going to my first test match, was, which was uh, my mother took me along with a, another arts council mate um, through you know, her background. And so my mum took me to Eden Park in 1979 and saw the great Imran Khan um, tearing in against New Zealand. So so in 79, I was 13 and um, that sort of really sort of had the bug and I was already, you know, playing cricket anyway as, a, as a 11, 12 year old. But to go to something like that helped, you know, fuel the fire, if you like. When did you first get into the Auckland system? I remember um, in terms of underage stuff, my first underage one was probably under 17s. So in terms of, and not probably growing much more since then, um, I was always on the Hobbit side of things, which I like to sort of self-deprecate uh, because, you know, being somewhat vertically challenged, trying to run and do a, a big man's job, you know, ideally you want to be, you know, six foot plus um, and us midgets that are under six foot, uh, we're always going to fight against that. And so, um, yeah, that Auckland under-17 side that uh, went away. We went to Napier and played down there in the um, eastern Cape of New Zealand, the Hawke's Bay. So that was a real blast for me um, as a 17-year-old uh, back in 1983. And then again into that under-19 side and then getting into the New Zealand under-19 side, um, getting really serious about things. And then it was coming to beautiful northwest London. Um, and playing in that Schwepp 75 league, which was Harefield Cricket Club, and they play out there. And um, a couple of us guys from Takapuna Grammar got sent there. We did a fundraising night. And so I went there in that summer of 84, which was great because the West Indies were touring. That was the Blackwash tour. They won all five and ran over a few deer palms. And we loved that. And so I was living in a flat right above the Cricket Club in Harefield. Now, Harefield famous for its heart hospital there in, in West London. And um, a, a real Anzac connection, a lot of Anzacs buried in the church down the bottom of the village there so there was a real lovely synergy of going back there and so that was 84 and 86 and so getting into play first class cricket um 
I came back from that first gig in London and I played against the New Zealand side that was going to Pakistan. And I played in an Auckland Invitation 11 with the likes of Gary Troop, uh, certainly a guy, Paul Kelly, uh, you know, was our keeper who couldn't play it. And someone like Brian Young, who was um, playing the opposition side. David White, who's now, you know, the CEO of um, New Zealand Cricket and has been the CEO of rugby franchises in the UK. So he was playing in it. So I got a six for, I got six for 49 um, at a nice club ground in Auckland. So that sort of put me on the map, as it were. And so from there, and then had a back injury, struggled with that as an, as an 18 year old, and then realized I had to get fitter and stronger and then got the Dennis Lilly's Art of Fast Bowling, which became, a, became almost like a Bible for me. I used to have that in my cricket coffin throughout a lot of my career, just to refer back to uh, and to motivate. And then the great Richard Hadley, when I you know, was in the system of playing for Auckland, got picked for New Zealand in 87, saw Hadley on the top of his coffin would have these, this, these bold, just one-line statements about how in fitness and rhythm and breathing and all of that sort of stuff and focus and switching on mechanisms um, to be very in the, in the zone, as it were. And so that was a wonderful time to get sort of in the groove, as it were. And then your first uh, class debut came against Central Districts, so 85-86. Am I correct to say you got the top three batsmen out taking the professional game to... Dr. Uh, Dr. Walter. It was funny because we played a lot at Eden Park number two. And so if, I suppose if you look at it, you got, let's make a comparison. Like Lords, you've got the nursery ground out the back. The Eden Park number two ground is probably slightly bigger. It's, it's got a bit bigger bound and stuff. But similar like that. We tended to play a lot of first-class cricket out the back. Had a whole separate stand where the indoor school was. And so it was nice and intimate because, of course, you know, you don't get a huge amount of people watching. But back in that time, um, you'd probably maybe get, you know, two or 300 people and it would be quite nicely full in the stand and around the, you'd lie around the boundary and Sandringham Road running around. And so you had then a, a rock formation and a block of flats right next door and the scoreboard in the corner and some other nets, turf nets to play on in one side of it. So it had a lot of nice intimacy and it, it meant that you really enjoyed playing around those grass banks with a little bit of the back of the Eden Park main stand, the West Stand. Um, it just made it more intimate because, as you know, Eden Park's more of a rugby stadium and it really was in quite an open, empty, concrete jungle. So this was lovely to play first-class cricket and the pitch used to nip around a bit and then they shaved it and made Johnny Bracewell and Dipak Patel and another guy, Bill Fowler, who played for Derbyshire for years, they dined out on it. So I almost left to go to Central Districts. Funny you should mention my first-class debut there. I almost went to go and play alongside Martin Crowe who was already had made the move for Auckland to go to CD. So there was talk about that around 80, 88, 89. And then you bowled some serious pace at the start of your career. Was it, did, did, did bowling fast come natural to you or did you have to work at it from like a young age in terms of, did you look at the technical aspects or was it just all natural? I think I looked a lot at Richard Hadley and Dennis Lilly and I think now, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, you look at all those great videos and you sit on YouTube and uh, uh, Fire in Babylon, that wonderful thing about the West Indies, and looking at someone like Malcolm Marshall. Now, he toured in 1987. I remember playing two first-class matches against the West Indies there. And in a way, if I'd seen more of him as a youngster, I'm talking about, you know, as an 11 and 12-year-old kid, uh, to run through the crease, being more of his stature and zip through the crease with quick feet landing and getting through the crease would have been more advantageous, I think, for my frame. But because your idol was Dennis Lilly, Richard Hadley, these two load up and 
get into a big delivery stride and, and a big drag. So you, you just follow those footsteps. And um, I think for me, um, I trained hard. I used to get up at 4.40 in the morning, week on, week off, and do a milk run around Devonport, Auckland, where I live. It was quite hilly. So when I think about that as a, as a precursor to fitness, um, I was up. It was my job in my last three years of grammar school. I'd get up get into routines of getting up early to do the job week on week off I shared it with a mate a football mate and um, I think that put me in good stead for stamina and running in and I think running in not that I was thinking of you know am I am I, am I good enough am I eventually going to do this as a, as a part-time living semi-professional professional, professional. Um, it, I think that sort of fitness and being into other sports i.e rugby then soccer um, football um, allowed me to train and get right into that groove and all of that people going you know the whole stamina thing and then longevity um, put me in good stead to run in and bowl fast and if I just delve a bit deeper and really get your coaching hat on your uh, technical elements of bowling you see a lot of um, professional coaches they talk about the braced front leg shoulder hip separation do you have any views on that Oh, massively, because the great thing about it, when you look at, uh, I think, in the Commonwealth countries, in terms of more so the UK, um, bits of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, and let's encompass the whole of the UK, as opposed to, say, the subcontinent and the West Indies, whereas uh, they're getting a little bit more uh, in terms of biomechanics and academies. But, you know, look at Jasper Bumrah. I mean, his very stiff, awkward, it looks awkward, and it's a very short run-up, and then all of a sudden, the last split second, he just goes boom through the crease. Uh, Alasith Malenga, you know, who was way out here at sort of almost three o'clock, instead of being, you know, you talk about midday, high, on, high arm, and then getting lower. I mean, you know, they could have had all of that stuff coached out of them if they were in the English system, or here in New Zealand, or Australia, or what in South Africa with their academies. Um, what I love about the beauty of cricket is that when you look at subcontinent techniques, and then even for that matter, Steve Smith out of Australia, I mean, how fidgety he is and how much he moves around the crease. Simon Katic, how he used to slide across the crease. That's a batting perspective. But from the bowlers as well, I, I think uh, the beauty of cricket is that you don't have to have sort of like a, a load-up James Anderson action or, or the great Richard Hadley, who was so smooth and fine-tuned, like Lily and them were really smoothly geared and a lot more technically... Um, aligned if you like um, whereas now in the modern game you've got the West Indians and we talk about picture framing and looking through here and being front on over your pelvis because at the end of the day you've got a release from front on you know the old days would be very coached closed and then get around to swing it out and follow through across your body well there's all that counter rotation and so over the last sort of 20 years in particular the, the delving into the coaching aspect about the biomechanics and being safe with you feet, your hips, your shoulder, everything aligning, going straight, is pretty much, uh, when you look at Bumrah, you know, feet point straight down the pitch, he's quite open, he's very jerky and boom, and then all of a sudden, um, he uh, releases over a brace front leg. So again, it's very different. So in a way, that's the beauty of the game, in terms of, for my philosophy, is keeping it quite simple. Um, what worked for me, Neil, was that, you know, I following the Dennis Lilly Richard Hadley model was then their philosophy of starting straight to go straight. And I suppose in the modern game, you look at YouTube and what's going on. And Brett Lee was a bit like that too. Brett Lee at the start of his run up, he would take off from a regular foot, 
whether it was back foot, front foot landing, he would start and then go into it and build into it. So the analogy I like to use for, for, for particularly the fast bowling thing is, is the train leaving the station. First gear, second gear, third gear, and you, you grad, gradually start, slowly build up into it and there's lovely crescendo and get up and deliver the ball. Boomer throws that out the window. You know, he's sort of stuttery and you know, his run-up looks like he's missing it. And then all of a sudden it's just boom and he gets it done. Um, and he's hugely effective, massively. And, and, and in a way, you know, you have a little bobbing along, Lusik Malinga, and then a jerky whippy boom and he's way out here and hugely successful, tough on the body. Probably don't um, encourage it from the safety side of thing of the mechanism, but it worked for him. And you see different bowling action. So in terms of having been through the system in New Zealand cricket, done a level three coaching certificate and all of that 20 years ago, um, it's fascinating to see and then coach with Dennis Lilly when he was at MRF and been asked to do other bits and pieces in India, say prior to an IPL or prior to a commentary stint session tour that ask you to come along and, and help out and do something. So um, I like to that whole KISS theory, Neil, to keep it simple. You know, the basics of your action, look at someone and a lot of the coaching philosophy about, to a lot of it, whether it's, you know, and, and you'll delve into it more with spin bowlers, but for quicker bowlers, certainly from your feet upwards, where do your feet land? Because you jump in there. And the other big thing where Lily was on about it too is that the ball in your hand where this went dictated to. So if you threw that out there, clearly you are going to tend to fall there, the counterbalancing thing. So you get people who like to load up. And even Brett Lee changed that. He came in closer to there. Mitchell Johnson, you know, he'd worked with Lily and he bought it more compact to be in the, what they call a cylinder to get in there, load up and then uncoil. So you're trying to keep it as simple and balanced because you're also thinking about injury prevention because it's not a really sensible thing we've been told to do to our bodies is run in and hurl a cricket ball quickly. Um, and you could say that about that with Shane Warne, how aggressive he was through the crease. He was just a strong guy anyway, but he'd just load up and then boom and rip through his body. Um, and you've seen a, some cricketers copy his action. And the same for different other finger spinners that, you know, very, very different. Uh, but some can be so effective at the highest level because of their wrists, how they release the ball, where they release it from, um, biomechanically I'm talking, and then how smart they are with the top sort of three inches, how they use the crease, when they release a certain ball, their, their, their variations. So that's the beauty of cricket. And I think people listening to your podcast will, will, will fathom that, that there's so many little technical nuances versus um, natural flair and away from academy setups that can be very effective. And I think, again, particular subcontinent, guys, different grips and stuff. I mean, Fuff Duplessis' grip, you know, defies, you think, geez, he's fighting against himself, but he's been successful. Um, you know, Indian, Indian guys who pick up the bat differently and wave it out here. As I say, Steve Smith's another one, waves it out there. Graham Smith used to hold the bat right behind himself on an awkward angle and the closed face. But again, found a way at the highest level and made it work. So again, I just don't think there's one particular right answer. I think coaches coach the way they do, I think from a safety perspective. And when, this is, this is crucial too, Neil, that when you're dealing with youngsters and their body's changing, that's the difficulty. You're dealing with youngsters, say like, you know, between five, six, seven, eight to 10. Then when they're going from 10 through their teens and stuff, your body's forming and developing. And I think the difficulty for quick bowlers is that a lot of the stress fractures and injuries is because you don't settle down when your body doesn't settle down until your early 20s. And they talk about being until you're 25, that your skeletal, particularly your spine in it, is then solid, strong, settled, 
growth stopping, there you are. And then you're probably on the downward side once you get past 25. So there are all of those things to, to take into consideration as well. I know that's a long-winded answer, but I think it's very important for people that watch your podcast that if they're an aspiring quick bowler, there's so many little different things that go into it. And you've got to be mindful of the youngsters growing and changing their bodies massively from the age of five to the age of early 20s. And then the year after your debut season for Auckland, you became the uh, the new ball bowler. You were ch- you were given the new ball. You talked about the little intricacies and the little variations. I know you're a very effective outswing bowler. So I know you got cricket ball to hand there. Do you, was it? Can you, do you have any tips in terms of like grip positions? Little like in terms of wrist, um, arm yeah. positions that you used to use to to great effect. Yeah, yeah, totally. And look, I'm pulling out one of these from a mate. And, you know, I, I tend to do a lot of coaching when I moved here. Uh, before the big T20 franchises kicked in, um, I did a lot of coaching up here uh, north of Brisbane. And um, uh, school camps, holiday clinics and stuff with a guy, Brad Murphy, and um, really enjoyed it. And so a, a ball like this, whether it's for spin bowling and showing grips and stuff and using, you know, a dominant finger to do that or finger spinners turning the doorknob the other way, um, it's almost like I'm better to be standing and showing a verse on bowling down that way. Um, if this was orthodox and um, that's your, that's my, so that's my rough side and that's my shiny side, I, I tend to show kids in, in coaching that, you know, trying to hold it in a comfortable position that you're not actually choking it right back in here and that you want to have it out there. And because, see, in terms of my, my um, physicality or lack of it, is that my digits aren't long not a big hand and not big fingers, as opposed to you think about Kirtley Ambrose and, you know, those guys had such an advantage with long fingers, Walsh, commentator with Ian Bishop, massive hands. And a ball would look like a stripped-down tennis ball for them. So in terms of getting all of that, you're trying to get that lovely release to come out so you're not choking it. So you really, and I talk about just putting your fingers in there so it's not choking. There is that gap to do that. And that in terms of another drill to get the ball to come out because we're trying to swing it to go down the pitch to a right-hander that's facing me down there. Um, Here's, again, I mentioned my rough side, my shiny side. The rough side would would suck it out to go away to the slip cordon of a right-hander. Gets a bit confusing now, Neil, when that that rough side and that shiny side for reverse swing stays the same. And because it's called reverse swing, because it's reverse of the orthodox textbook of that swinging out, I'd have that there and I'd have that there, and I'd tilt it slightly in. Same thing, rough, shiny, but release it, a bit like Malanga get lower on the clock, and then that would swing and suck in, particularly the white ball in, in one-day cricket. And But same with the red ball in old. Um, and you'll see that, I mean, the advent of, of the last 20 years is that is so, so dominant, reverse swing, and you talk about the highest level, you can't reverse swing a cricket ball like a like Anderson's doing and, and broad that in tandem together, and then you've got... Bolt and Southie for New Zealand, and then you think about uh, particular subcontinent bowlers, very good at it. Um, you encourage kids to learn to get the grip right, and then the other one to do is the other technical drill I like to do is that you have children sitting around at young age that if they really are an aspiring swing quick bowler, then you sit around doing lots of this. Now, I remember seeing the great Richard Hadley when I shared the dressing room with the knight, <laughs> Sir Richard, is that he had a 50 cent piece. And that was quite a big coin. And he would just flick it up. And it's amazing how much it would come out beautifully vertical. 
and then he progressed from that the coin and then he just get the ball because it was his job as I inherited it was his job to choose the cricket ball so you'd be sitting around even at home and I've seen subsequently guys younger than me in a different era um, they would sit around and talk and they'd be chatting and just doing lots of that sitting around and flicking because you were flicking and working on that that release and that was all about getting your wrist behind the ball to get it to come down how you would like it to come down whether it was out swing turn it over and your wrist turn it and you're trying to get it to come down and then swing into a right hand or away to a lefty um, that was key and a lot of that encouraging kids and particularly these this apparatus red and white and so you can see it clearly coming out and not either wobbling because you're trying to get a strong wrist behind the ball to swing it have that deception and if you're an aspiring pace bowler you've got to be able to do something in the air and that was the beauty of it whether it's been naughty and, and a lot of that history over it you know the old shh, shh, being naughty and scratching and some got to the extent where they were biting it and being rather naughty in the 90s um, uh, is that you have to be able to do something in the air because often pitches can be so flat it could be more friendly for spinners and batters totally but you can see why the two w's were so dominant um wazim and waka to get it to go in the air you know the great teacher in Imran Khan but you have to be able to do that and by having a good wrist and getting in a good position to do that um, I would say is paramount for young aspiring quicks. And then in 87 you got called up for the for the World Cup you made your one-day debut uh, I know New Zealand had already been knocked out but you made your debut uh, against India how was that in terms of um, excited? Did you feel excited in terms of your your mental uh, aspect? Did you did you feel any pressure? Did you feel ready? What was going through your mind? And any tips that you might give to youngsters in terms of making the step up? Yeah, it was it was a very interesting time because I I was sort of there in a way to gain experience as a young guy around the scene. Um, Richard Hadley didn't go on. That World Cup because it was in the subcontinent. Uh, he wanted a break. He just finished with knots his last year of county cricket, the great Richard Hadley. Um, and that World Cup was straight after that. And it was in a particularly tough environment. You know, the subcontinent back then was a tough place to tour, um, just with hygiene and, and, you know, just getting around. It was just a different world back then as it is today in the last, say, 15 years because of the IPL. Um, I found it very challenging because. Phil Horn, who's an older brother of the former opening batter, Matt Horn. And so Phil and I would be singing along to um, a song, um, Your Dear Cliff Richard, and that part of the rest of Cliff Richard, we're all going on a summer holiday, because we went playing, you see. So we were the dirt trackers down the back being cheeky um, and having a laugh. But we knew we may get some sort of opportunity, and, and it didn't come until, you're right, we, um, we were gone, the New Zealand side. But India they had to win the game well. So, of course, they wanted to bowl first to know what they had to chase. They won the toss. Chet and Sharma ended up getting a hat trick. Um, we got to 239 or something, something like that. And India had to score that within 40 of the 50 overs to get a home semi-final that turned out to be England. And they got that. And Sonny Gavisco is a great, uh, great, great servant, great legend of the game. And I've done a lot of commentary with him. And subsequently, there's a little anecdote too, um, he got his 100 and he brought it up off me, but he said, Danny, and we were commentating on him, it must have been about 10 years ago. I think it was a New Zealand-India series. He goes, Danny, well, why didn't you appeal? And that one down the league side early on, it might have been just off the mark, I think. 
maybe I might have been on one or two and no one appealed but no one you didn't appeal and I and he did he got a little feather on his head I just got a little feather but no one appealed not even Ian Smith keeping because of course you had a lot of noise there it was the old Nagpur ground and it was whistles and yahooing and there was so much energy because the Indian crowd knew that their home side had to get this total within 40 overs. So there's a lot of noise. And no, I didn't say, oh, that's charming, great. So you could have been out for like one or two and you ended up getting 100 not out. You know? And so there was that side of it. But yeah, look, it was tough for me in that heat. I got smashed on it. I went, you know, 10 overs was probably 70 or something um, and disappeared around the track. Uh, had another one, Chris Shrikant hooking. I remember that came off the glove. And we had the two great India, uh, two great English arms with Dickie Bird and uh, uh, rest in peace, dear old Dave Shepherd, um, the good Gloucester man. And he gave it not out. And Smithy and I were going, are you kidding me? You know, you're one of those ones that hook it and it just brushes off the top of the hand. So we all went up for that one. But dear old Shep said, no, mate, didn't see the deflection, whatever. So, you know, it was one of those ones that was a bit heart-wrenching because you knew you sort of got, you sort of felt, yeah, you got a wicket, didn't count, wasn't given out by the ump. And then... Sonny telling me that years later <laughs> that, you know, I didn't walk and, and went on to get 100. So it was memorable from that regard. Um, but you're right. Um, yeah, pretty nerve wracking, but also very relaxed there because I think because for us it was a, you know, it was a bit of a non-event. We'd been knocked out of the World Cup. I remember the, uh, Willie Watson who opened the bowling, uh, a bit, particularly in one day cricket or was a first change bowler. Um, we, we were all getting smashed around the park. You and Chatfield, Willie, myself. Sneds got all butchered around the park. Um, and he mentioned to me, he goes, good Lord. He goes, Danny, this is like bowling on the highlights. <laughs> the highlights for you. Everything was just disappearing. <laughs> Getting smashed by Shreepkant and Sonny. Um, it was just extraordinary. Even the great run miser, Ewan Chatfield, just got smashed back over his head. He was going for being hit for six. But it was a small ground, let's be fair. Um, and India got the result they wanted and they, they got to his home semi. But then, yeah, that same year, you got your your test cap debut against Australia, um, Brisbane. And I did it also then, the skipper, he chucked you the new ball as well, Jeff Crow, alongside um, Sir Richard Hadley. How was that as an experience? And also, can you talk about the fundamental differences as a bowler, bowling in one-day cricket and test a longer form as well? Yeah, huge. But the funny thing about that at that time, that, that World Cup we played in 87 was um, red ball white clothing red ball but of course playing for Auckland in their well, shell cup as it was back then um, you played with white ball of course white ball cricket was huge and it was around in the World Series stuff in Australia all that sort of thing but um, for me uh, getting an opportunity there was a blast because in a way I had I had no expectation to play I wanted to play sure and in, uh, the game at Perth went quite well I think I got I think I got a three and a three for a first class game Richard Hadley played alongside Myself and Willie Watson got an opportunity as the young guys and you and Chatfield and the likes of Martin Sneddon uh, and the senior seamers had the game off. So we bowled quite well. Um, certainly, uh, I, for personally, it went well for me alongside Sir Richard. I had the game off in Adelaide uh, and worked with him. Hadley played in that as well. But I had that game off, was 12th man. And it was great to be around the dressing room learning, roomed with Richard Hadley uh, in Adelaide um, and just chatted to him. Uh, in that first class match and then of course we went back from Perth Adelaide boom back to Brisbane and then I found myself being called up and it was like holy heck you know this is it this is where you cross in inverted commas the border 
from dreamland to reality. I was like, wow, this is this is becoming real. So that was the great thing. It was at the Gabba, and they felt with Danny with his extra pace, bowls out swing. This is this is a great place for a young guy to have his debut. And it's time for you to you know step up, my friend. Um, which was a complete blast because I had you know you and Chatfield, Richard Hadley, and myself as the main guys, uh, Bracewell, Offspin, and Dipak Patel as the all-rounding spin. So we had those options, and even Martin Crow to bowl as a little bit of zippy in swingers and um, seamers if, if needed. Um, when I look back on that, huge occasion for me uh, because you were playing alongside a lot of that side that I wagged school for in 1982 as a, as, a, as a school pupil to go and watch play Australia. And Dennis Lilly and Tom I were touring New Zealand in 1982. And we took time off, wagged school to go and watch that last day. Um, five, five or six of us out of the first 11 um, took off and had the day off. And, um, and then our deputy principal brought the junior kids and saw us there all wagging in the terraces, drinking cans of lager. Um, madness. But when I look at that, to then fast forward from going to that as a, as a schoolboy in 1982 to playing alongside Sir Richard Hadley, who'd been such an icon for so long, to then, you know, transcend that line um, was just extraordinary. And then to play at the Gabba, and, you know, Lily was such an idol for me, um, playing in Australia. My father lived in Melbourne. He was there, been there full time since 1980. So there was this whole connection there um, to be playing in Australia you know, even on my radar now, I mean, yeah, we knew the, the test match was going to be there. The series was starting in Brisbane and it went to Adelaide. It, 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 when I look back on it, I didn't even have any thoughts and uh, recollection of going, oh, there's a Boxing Day test just quietly thrown in. You know, New Zealand only had played like two previously to that. Um, I think back in the 74 to a 73, 74 and in 1980, they played uh, at the Boxing Day test match. Here we are in 87 playing another one. Now, had we played in the 1981, and here we were playing this one. So when I look back to that test at the Gabba, it was just, you know, you were so almost locked off and you had your blinkers on because you there were wanting to play. Of course you wanted to. And a test match, um, huge difference, a lot more expectation. So from one day cricket, the comparison of test match cricket, of course, more attacking fields. Um, you know, my strength was the new ball, outswing bowler with Richard Hadley. Um, just a fascinating time to then go from thinking playing first-class cricket to making that big step up uh, against the Aussies, Alan Borders captain, you know, Dean Jones, Merv Hughes, Jeff Marsh, all of those guys. They just won the Cricket World Cup. They'd beaten England in 1987 at Calcutta. So there was all that hype around the Aussies with a new uh, generation of guys coming through. They, they had the Rebel Tours in South Africa, lost a lot of players. And here they were developing a new crop that were, you know, exciting and useful uh, and getting confidence, the Aussies in themselves. So it was an amazing time to be part of that side with Hadley in his twilight of his career. Same with you and Chatfield, you know, playing with John Wright, the Crow brothers. Martin Sneddon was a club mate of mine. He played in the underarm game of February 81. He was my solicitor as well. We played club cricket together. We played first class cricket together. He'd pick me up sometimes. I'd pick him up to take him to Auckland games. So there was a real nice feeling about being in that group. Did you feel, uh, did you view Test cricket as the pinnacle of the sport? And it, is that what you feel uh, to this current day as well? That Test cricket? Above, I do. Of the one-day game? I think just by the word of it, Test cricket, it tests you 
not only as a player, but I think as a character and how much determination you've got and uh, stamina um, be so up and down dramatically. Um, again, uh, I come, my mother comes from a thespian background with drama. Um, and in terms of that, realizing that sport is a metaphor for life, it really is. And cricket, test match cricket really is because it's, it's a journey and there are so many highs and lows and ups and downs like there is with life. Um, and for a lot of us that talk more about that, um, certainly with franchise T20 cricket, there's so much more and, and there's so much more money and revenue in the game. It leans towards guys making money out of the game, sure. But also test cricket where you've got a lot of specialists. Um, and I think it's, it's very difficult for uh, the smaller, lesser lights to get that um, in terms of test cricket being the ultimate pinnacle. It is. But I think for England and Australia, because they've had that history with the Ashes, India part of the big three, and there's that whole border Gavaskar trophy that's full on. India going to England, longer series, all of that. South Africa, South Africa going through the huge transition of the black and white system, and understandably so. Um, T20 white ball cricket, shorter, faster, um, this what, Y, Z, X generation, um, won it here, won it yesterday. Um, got shorter attention span. White ball cricket, T20 cricket, even T10 that started now in recent years is evolving. And so a lot of old experts, older than myself even, saying, uh, um, is it really the death of test cricket because of this white ball, different styles of it, 50 over cricket, now becoming T20. And I've worked on the, the ones in the UAE since 17, 18, 19 of T10. And then Martin Crow had this great game called Cricket Max. Um, we had four lots of 10 because he wanted two innings. Dean Jones or say Michael Vaughan had got out for naught. Sachin Tendulkar got out for naught in his first um, 10 overs. But you could see him bat again in the same limited overs match because it was four lots of 10 rather than just two lots of 20. So that to me has got another whole hybrid to go. It's a fascinating game. And so for people watching this podcast, to delve into that, go back into Cricket Max, Max Zones, Martin Crow wanted to, he wanted to encourage people hitting it straight. The six became 12, four became eight when you hit it through the zones, but like Aussie rules, hitting it through the posts. If you hooked and got a top edge and it went behind you for six, it stayed six. You had to hit it in front to be a classy, full face, full blade, good cricket shot, not a hoiking. Now they play 360, you call it hoiking, but it's not. It's just reverse sweeping for six and late dabbing dill scoops and everything, right? The game's completely changed. But when Crow came out with this, in 1997, we had a league of it. So Martin was way ahead of his time, massively ahead of his time uh, for the cricket conservative establishment that it is to embrace that. And so test cricket was still very dominant then. Until you got IPL in 2008, all of that. And he was talking, he was doing this in 2007. And that's where I remember finishing playing and starting commentary to learn the nuances of it and getting excited about the game, that's where that was dominating. So test cricket, it is the ultimate meal for us. And I think it is still for a lot of guys. You know, you talk to Bolton Southie, swing, and I'm talking from a pace bowling fraternity. It really is. They're in tandem. I think Bolton Southie are close to getting 300 test wickets individually between them. And that'd be a huge thing, particularly for the New Zealanders, uh, where we get injured a bit, come and go, maybe don't have the same length of uh, career as a lot of other guys out of England, Australia, South Africa, 
uh, what have you, India, the subcontinent, where they do, it's just such a passion, they last long and subsequently achieve more. So, you know, I look at that, Neil, um, Test cricket still is the ultimate. I think for a lot of it, you can see the ICC trying to hold on to it, and rightly so. The history of the game is so long. Um, but, you know, pink ball test cricket, there's another question. You, I'm sort of throwing questions <laughs> and answering them too. But I think when you look at it, um, pink ball, day-night test cricket, people working longer, changing their social activities and entertainment time, uh, it's a no-brainer. And so you'll see more of that developing and having night test cricket to fit into um, what is already a very congested calendar of white ball cricket. And then going back to 1992 and the World Cup, the semi-final, you got three for, but New Zealand didn't make it to the final. Do you look back at it as one that, that got away? Not really in a way. I mean, it was, the great thing about that is that we, we had nothing to lose because we'd come off a series losing 3-0 to England in a test series. And we're playing a World Cup and Martin Crowe had some great strategies with Coach Lees and we opened the bowling with Deepak Patel. And so on our surfaces, our sort of dibbly-dobbly and wobbly pace attack, which was like Chris Harris and, you know, even Rod Latham had a little bit and Gavin Larson, sometimes, you know, the keeper can stand up to him. Smithy could on different pitches, he'd stand back a bit, but when the ball got softer and older, you, Smithy often would come up to Gab Larson. So, you know, you, you could do that. And then, of course, the spin of Patel. So it's like the likes of Willie Watson, myself, and, and Chris Cairns. And I shared it a bit with Kenzie. Uh, with, I had a few injury issues. Another groin thing was playing up for me. And I think the balance of the side, you know, I could get left out because Kenz was a batting or, you know, he was a, an all-rounder. So he added another string to his bow. I didn't. And then when I look at that scenario... Um, we'd won seven on the trot and the two games we lost at the end, uh, the last the last round Robin game where you talked about there, I got a three for in that last round Robin game uh, and Rami's got a hundred and played really well and, and uh, was there with a bit with Jarvid. We lost that game, but we were confident and then we had to play them. As it turned out, we played Pakistan in the semi-final, but at home again in Eden Park. So, you know, Crow got that wonderful 90, but tore his hamstring couldn't orchestrate. He was a big conductor of our orchestra. Couldn't pull the strings because he knew all the idiosyncrasies within that playing 11 on any given day and knew what to do. John Wright had to take over in the second half of it. So Wrighty, you know, who had been the previous captain, but didn't know all the nuances and all the little different intricacies that Crow knew and felt when to pull someone off or come and bowl just a couple of overs for me here. You know, as I say again, Crow was a great thinker of the game and ahead of his time with that sort of thinking. And we, because we opened the bottom of the tip she's um, no one had done that. You know, he, that innovation was extraordinary. So when you look at that, and then I think about Inzamam coming out and playing the innings of his life as a very young kid, um, and Jarvid working it around and playing sensibly and winning the game there with Inzamam and there with, I think, Mo and Khan at the end because some other wickets had fallen. And they, they did it with an over to spare. So when you look at it like that, Chase Down, that was about 260-odd. I think it was at 262 or something. That was a lot back then. That would be the equivalent of chasing down 350 today in a semi-final situation. So it just shows you that thing of that sort of surfaces was a bit like a subcontinent pitch. And yes, you could say, is that the one that got away? There were those things, I think, almost like being very philosophical about it and very esoteric about it was that in the universe, Pakistan 
because of Imran Khan and his thing of wanting to create and build a big cancer hospital because his mother was very ill at the time, um, you could see that almost like the cricketing gods were saying, this was their time. And they also peaked at the right time, to be fair. They were very hungry and keen. And again, nothing to lose. They smashed us at Christchurch and won the semi-final to then go and play England at the MCG. Um, an extraordinary time. And so then they won the World Cup and it, it was a big boost for the country in Pakistan. And look at him now. He's Prime Minister now in a very difficult scenario in Rin Khan. So I look back on it and, yeah, it was not so much one that got away. It was just an amazing month of our lives to be part of that in New Zealand, in our own backyard, to even get to the semi-final, given our lead-up over those recent couple of years leading into that World Cup. Um, we were battling and we, our side changed a lot. Guys came and retired and went. So, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time to be alive and playing in that side. And that same year, you came over and played for Lanks, Lancashire. How was that as an experience? Yeah, huge. I mean, I think uh, there was a couple of guys on the radar to do it. And I think, I think Stephen Jack, because a lot of the, uh, that South Africa-English connection of county cricket, and the Sappers are great pros too. A bit like, you know, you think about guys that come along and at that time, a lot of hired, you call it the, the hired help. Um, the West Indians, a lot of county wanted West Indian players or Pakistani stars that were developing at that time. And that was the first year that Durham, you know, Dean Jones, God rest his soul, um, was at Durham and Durham became the 18th county. Um, I got the opportunity, I think, because Stephen Jack had rolled his ankle and smashed his ligaments. And England were playing New Zealand. And I remember um, Neil Fairbrother was involved on that tour and the manager, I'm trying to think of his name, um, of the England team at the time was also the chairman of Lancashire County Cricket Club. And so they, they asked me an opportunity, look, um, would you like to come and do it? And so it was a no brainer really, because I was 26 and just young and, and wanting to get more experience. And that was one of my goals. I'd also said, I'd love to play county cricket. And I remember telling the guys at Harefield and in particular, the treasurer of the club who I did some work for back in the mid eighties on the road, uh, the, the uh, Canon photocopiers exhibition on the road. And told Gerald Harmon that, and then he and I saw him before he died because he died very late in '93, and it was great he had asbestosis. But he, mem he remembers. He goes, Morrison, I remember you saying to me, one of your goals was not only, of course, to play for New Zealand country. And everyone sort of laughed at me at the time in 1984 as an 18-year-old. Look at you, Morrison. Come on, look at you. You sawn off runt. How the earth are you going to keep running and bowling fast and you know, trying to make it at the highest level? And I told Gerald on one of those trips, I'd, yeah, I'd love to have a cricket county cricket, just to develop and hone skills like the great Richard Hadley did. I mean, Nottinghamshire made Richard Hadley, no doubt, and he's mentioned this a lot over the years. Um, it honed his skills and made him the bowler he was pretty much from 1982 through to 1990. And so, um, yeah, that, that was a great opportunity. Wazzy Macrum was the big superstar overseas player. They were touring, so someone had to fill in for Waz. And great setup. Living in Didsbury, um, Nick Speak, who was one of the guys I played with, and then he went off to Durham, but Speaky, who lives out in Australia these days as well. Nick married an Aussie, sensible boy, um, lives in Melbourne. And uh, we rented Speaky's apartment, Kim and I. And I was engaged at the time too. So Kimmy, it was great having, turned out obviously wife. Um, and um, playing at Lanks was, it was a really good experience. Um, tough gig because they were three-day matches, not the four-day stuff. And it was towards the end of that cycle of three-day cricket and some limited overs cricket and chopping and change and driving those motorways. My God, Neil. 
holy schmoly, it was a lot. And you could see why guys would sort of get stiff backs and sore backs just getting into a car and you might have to bowl twice in this first-class match and you bowled last in the game, get in your car and boogie on back to Manchester when you'd been in South, you know, South London, St. the Oval. So, yeah, it was. It was a grind, but it was a, it was a wonderful learning curve. And if we can get your coaching hat back on and we just talk about um, we talk about like death bowling when it comes to the shortest form of the game. Obviously, you've got the famous hat trick against India in '93. Do you remember? Do you remember the guys you got out? And also, you played well, in the '93 World Cup as well. But yeah, talk us through that as an experience and some tips for youngsters in terms of getting those Yorkers in. Again, I think um, you know you talk about Lasith Malinga, and he used to talk about just putting a, a shoe, you know, just putting a training shoe on the popping crease. And um, he would just bowl at that for hours. And I remember talking to Waka Yunus, same thing. He would just put something down like it was just a, I think it was a, like a handkerchief or a toweling piece of that thing. And he would stick it on that popping crease. And he just bowled it because then, you, you know, you don't want people, batters don't want to just face Yorkers all the time. They want the whole variety. Of course they do in a net. But you'd had to do that on your own. And those guys specifically for me, great Yorker. Um, exponents of it. You think about Joel Garner, particularly in, in, the, in the 80s, played a lot for Somerset and again honed that skill. Uh, Yorkers just, and we go on about it in the commentary, sometimes they've gone away from it because in T20 you've got so many different changes of pace and cutters and you know, slow balls at the back of the hand and radio and rah and then wide Yorkers and that. But the good old Yorker, um, in terms of let's say particularly 50 over cricket, um, and that hat trick, yeah, it was funny because it's on YouTube and, and people have been putting it up on Twitter and quite recently asked me about it. And we, we go on about, um, I think Capital did, when you look at it, he changed his bat uh, on that footage that's a bit on YouTube, changed his bat and then chopped one on. And again, yeah, trying to get it full and that's what he's trying to do because we'd seen so much of uh, Wazim and Waka and what they were doing. And of course, everyone, you know, later in life, as you knew, you, the, the, the rough side, you're trying to, hurry the aging process so again being naughty and again they say well that's highly illegal you're not supposed to scuff that well you know everyone's doing it and they're the best at it and so you would you'd be just gently you know and, and somebody about you know just hold the ball there subtly you throw it back and your fingernail oh that'd be you know just oh sorry or outlawing the bounce throw you see not allowed to do that anymore and that's all coming to the game and they all knew that we started throwing the ball back to the keeper on the bounce and you'd try and throw it as a saucer to try and skim it on that side, right? Hurry the aging process, scuff the ball up. We knew what was going on with the two Ws, having two of them in 1919, wondered why the ball had these big scouring marks in it. Rough side, shiny side, calling it, as we talked about before, reversing it, but just subtly holding it maybe for a right-hander, just slightly towards leg stump to get it to go and suck in. So bowling Yorkers, um, a bit like, I suppose, spin bowlers, you know, trying to learn to bowl a googly and getting it to come out and it's on call. It's part of your repertoire. It's in the locker and commentary. You say to pull it out of the locker, you've got to work on it a lot. You've got to spend hours developing it and bowling lots of it. So again, the Yorker becomes a muscle memory thing where you let it go on the clock, high, low, whatever you want to do, but it's got a It's a feel thing. And it's such a difficult art to get it just right. Batters moving around in T20. Um, again, talked to recently at the IPL with Trent Bolt, hard to get a Yorker right with a new ball. It's a bit easier when the lacquer comes off subtly and it's a bit older to hold and grip to release, hence the reverse swing. Hence the ICC bringing in 
a ball from each end, which was a which was a bugger for the quick men because they used to remember start changing it at 34 overs. Well, back then when I got that hat trick in '94, we didn't. But they started batters started to complain because they said, "Oh, it's getting a bit grey. The white ball. It's hard to see. Can't pick it up. We want to change it, please, up." And of course, the ups would. So then that changed to let's change the ball at 34 overs became mandatory because the batters can see a nicer white ball and can also hit it further. <laughs> and it won't reverse as much, right? Softer, harder to hit out of the park. Bowlers had that in the game, right? They had that sort of um, extra bit of arsenal. Whereas that started to changing it out because, of course, the lawmakers in the game, they want the crowd entertainment, a ball disappearing to the fence or over it. Get it. But um, for, for out now aspiring youngsters and that coaching head on, you really do. There's, there's, there's no um, subsequent use of saying, I'll just run up and bowl your because we can't. It's like anything. You've got to practice it massively and get the ball in the hole. And Lusseth was great like that. Um, he put down a shoe. A lot of us did that same thing with cones. Or these days you can put down a disc, coloured disc, run in and just religiously get that whole muscle memory of bowling Yorkers. Did you feel that you subconsciously that your arm position slightly moved? Were you bowling a slightly lower trajectory? Oh, totally. Totally, because we've watched Waka Eunice and Waka got loans. And then you think of someone more in those recent times, similar, a little bit younger than me, Darren Goff. Now, Goff is same sort of build and what have you. He got lower and was able to tail that more as well. And so then you looked at Lusseth, and then Lusseth came along even later, started around about 05, and he was, man, God, he's almost, he almost at 3 o'clock. You know, a lot of us got out there to about 1 o'clock to get slingier. To, to, and again, the, the lower you can get on there sometimes, it really does help the trajectory of the ball, some of the seam coming down on that sort of an angle, um, almost like, say, a 45, to get it to at the last split second, dip in, and to get that late prodigious movement um, with a rougher ball, quite challenging to do. And I remember even other great ex-players came out, because there was all that crap going on in the mid-90s, of you know, people with sand in the pocket, dirt in the pocket, we get the Aussies in 2018, that whole drama with the tape and what have you, the sandpaper gate, etc. So clearly everyone was trying to rough it up and umpires want to look at it, not supposed to scratch the ball. Some, and I, I'm not going to name names, but it's saying, wrote about it at length, said, well, look, look, if it's honest here, it's fingernails, it's part of your anatomy. Why don't we make it a free fall? If you're making these pitches really flat, like shirt fronts and batters can just laugh at you, spinners could have a say because the pitches okay, they're going to be batting, but they're all, they might be a little bit slower. But, you know, let's let's then say, well, okay, let's make it a free-for. If you're scratching on that to get it to go, because it's entertaining. The ball hooping around and loving seeing reverse swing, it, I think, adds to the entertainment value of people watching the game at home. If you're good enough to be able to do that, reverse it, some reverse it more than others, you might have a Rabada in your team who's that much faster, a uh, Lockie Ferguson for New Zealand, you know, uh, Joffre Archer, They've got X Factor. They bowl at 150 clicks, whereas the other guys, Southie Bolt, you know, late 130s, 140 maybe. And it's not as not as lethal in terms of reverse and danger. But, you know, that's what you're trying to have different variations in the game and that entertainment. So, you know, I'm a big advent for seeing reverse swing. I think it's important. And then 96-97 season, your last test match, Eden Park against England, Talk us through more famously known for, for your antics with the bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny. I had my testimonial season. They don't have them anymore because the game becomes so much more professional. 
But for a lot of us back then, um, in England, you'd talk about service to a county, you'd have a testimonial season, a benefit season, and you could, it was tax free. So that was the beauty of it. And so a player could help pay part of his mortgage off, you know, buy a car for the dear wife or whatever it looked like, or invested into another business or, you know, life after cricket. So I had that going on 96, 97. Um, I just got the world record for test match ducks. So, I mean, I remember talking to Peter Wright, maybe he, he watches us, he'll love it again. We had a long bat, you know, the signature bats. So instead of the smaller ones, we've got a 20 inch one, it's quite a big one. And I got the guys at Gunnamore in, in New Zealand to cut a hole in the base of the blade. <laughs> Looked like a ball had gone through it. And they, they sort of, they, you wouldn't do it these days. It's not enough time. But put a hole in the bottom of these big miniature mats, me signed it, and I got uh, a duck sticker done. That, so that was, instead of Donald Duck, it was Danny Duck. So the duck became the theme of my testimonial season. So we'd have duck on the menu, like for a luncheon or a dinner, and these little uh, chocolate ducks as an after dinner mint. Um, so there's all this memorabilia duck tie I had done for the world record ducks. So I had all of that done because you know, in a magazine and all that sort of thing I had on the front of it. Luckily, geez, the timing came out before Princess died, sadly passed away. Had Danny and Diets alive because there was all of that stuff going on with Princess Di and what have you. And, um, bit of history going on and luckily that came out in 96 came out in about September 96 and my testimonial season finished around April 97 sadly she passed last day of August 97 so I had a lot of fun with it and I was a bit different and I am a bit different on the spectrum um, but loose and wild so I, and dear I'll tell you what I love winding up that English that my, my age group age bracket with my commentary that's another story, Dan. Neil, we dive into this for hours to wind them up with my vernacular and my my isms. Um, so I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun taking the Mickey out of myself with the Ducks, um, and then I ended up in that that last innings partnership. Um, when I came out to bat, I think we were about nine, ten, eleven ahead only with me coming in. So England foregone conclusion. Athers, who I played at Lancashire in the '92, was captain. I came out to bat in sunglasses. I was an Oakley-sponsored athlete. I came out and it was like the blind. You know, I came out with my, like a man with his white cane with a bat and sunglasses, helmeted up. And I also, this is another funny anecdote for you, I'd actually slogged 30-odd, I mean about 35 or something, 36, in the President's eleven game in Palmerston North against Dominic Cork and all the boys, England lads and nationally playing um, in a tour game. England versus the President's eleven, and three they go. I think we lost it, um, but I got thirty on slogging toughest. I said, "Toughest guy, mate, give it some air," and I'll, I'll give it a lick. You know, just lunatic, give it a lick, and, and I did. And I slogged a couple out of the ballpark straight, got it nice and clean, hit him straight for six on a couple of occasions, and then even tried pulling and got you know hit on the back on my shoulder trying to pull Dominic Cork bouncing me, splicing him over, but playing some shots. Come to that, they, the, the scene there. Um, I wasn't going to play any shots. And then, you know, Athers wanted to put a long on out for toughers and go on then, Dan, let's have it. But it was turning. This is day five of a test match. And I just played the Dunny Dawn, just blocked the heck out of it. While Astle at the other end would block, bash, four, block, block, hit another four. Often hit two fours in and over. And I just said, I said, no, mate, I'm here for you. I'm just going to, just going to block the so-and-sos out of it. And, you know, if they want to bounce me and pet me, fine. I'll just take it and we'll just, let's just see how long we can last. Have a bit of fun. And as it, just the afternoon ground on, I came in after lunch. We batted through that whole lunch, uh, lunch to tea, came off the tea, players cracking up laughing. We put on a bit of a head. Still had to go back out and bat for about another 
another 40 minutes or so. And it just got to a stage where suddenly we got enough runs past that we ended up shaking hands and saying, that's it. But I knew uh, Athers, um, he was he was mortified with his bowlers because he couldn't get Morrison out, for God's sake. He's got the world record for Ducks. And we know he's a bit of a lunatic and he likes slogging here and there or not. Or then, So I shut up shop and got lucky and played a mister, but had a bit of luck. Head butted one off Darren Goff. They took the next new ball. It was reversing a bit. So I used to stand outside my crease. I knew what they're trying to do to me because I'd be doing that too and trying to reverse it and york me and get me out LBW bowl. So I just, and then took a couple on the helmet and head butted a few on purpose and um, ended up surviving. And that turned out to be my last test match and then got the sack and that was it. Um, Danny, we're not here for your batting. Absolute clown. Um, we, had to, <laughs> we had to get people out. And so I had a lot of fun in my testimonial season um, with a, a testimonial um, memorabilia stuff out with a tent out the back, selling duck ties and duck callers with <laughs> these duck callers, um, T-shirts with all my ducks on the back, like a like a you know a rock concert tour where you've got you know they have them on the back of the T-shirt, um, and just had a lot of fun. And it was it was it was an amazing career when I look back on it like that. Didn't didn't finish how I wanted, sure, but at the same time um, went out on a bit of a high not with the ball, but with the bat, with Nathan Astle and, and batting in sunglasses because I could, you know, batting at 11, <laughs> taking the mickey. Do you think it was fair that that, was, that would be your last game or did you feel you deserved a longer, a bit longer run in the side? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you felt like you'd say, look, okay, mate, a tap on the shot. Okay, hey, listen, you need to deliver something here for your next test match because we're looking at other guys and just feel you're, you're missing something here, you know? And look, to be fair, it was a new coach. Steve Richardson came in, first time having a, a different coach from an overseas perspective, different look on things. And when you look back in hindsight now, I totally understand that um, it was perhaps a change for a lot of those guys moving on. Dipak Patel, Mark Greatbatch, myself, we're all finishing. Um, we finished up there. Ken Rutherford had buggered off a couple of years ago, went to South Africa. Um, you know, Martin Crow had finished um, a year or so before. So there really was a shifting of the guard. Yeah, you'd, you'd look, you know, you also at the time, you know, obviously pretty down and pretty frustrated and grumpy about it. But, you know, when you look back in time, um, you'd had a good run. I played for pretty much 10 years, had a testimonial, had a celebration of your career. Um, but, you know, that's life, isn't it? You know, guys, people lose their jobs. Geez, I mean, this whole thing with COVID going on, businesses falling over. I mean, really, when you look at it and put it in perspective, um, nothing compared to what people are going through. Again, that metaphor for life, sport, um, it can be pretty cruel um, and it can be cut off and you're gone as soon as you even got a start. So I was fortunate that I played as long as I did when I did. And as we've mentioned in this uh, podcast, Neil, you know, played a bit of county cricket. Um, again, didn't last there. Had my first hernia operation there in, uh, in Whaley Range there in uh, one of those booper hospitals, <laughs> giving them a bite. Um, and so that was the start of two hernias, 92, then again, another hernia, 94, and then I had an adductor tendon release groin operation in 96. So, you know, I was sort of a bit on borrowed time with that old style cricket action of mine, bowling action, um, but had a ball, had a, had a great time. And then how did you cope with retirement and then the move into commentary? See, a lot of players, not only in cricket, but in other sports as well, um, almost struggle in terms of, uh, coping with not playing that getting that kind of high that buzz and just almost not having a plan was there always a plan to move into the media how did you cope with 
when 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 the game was over for you in terms of on the playing side? I think also, um, and, and cricket lovers, if they're watching this, that Billy Birmingham's 12th man tape, the guy who impersonated all those accents of the Channel 9 commentary team and all their delivery. Um, and so a lot of us listened to that and you had that feel of it. And as I mentioned, uh, my mother's from a thespian background. I did a little bit of pantomime when I was 11 and 12 before, you know, moving from West Auckland to the uh, more affluent North Shore of, of Auckland uh, because of my uncle. Um, you did different things. And so I was between sports. I was between rugby and soccer. And so those two years was fascinating to go to the Maidment Theatre on a Saturday with my mum and, you know, do pottery classes, doing some stand-up um, pantomime in terms of going into like we call today theatre sports and having to stand up and go roll into role-playing as an 11 and 12 year which is quite daunting um, if you're into it. And then my mother wanted me to audition and some other things. And I got a bit nervous and fainted at one of these uh, movies that I was these series I was going to go into. But then sport took over. And as my dear mother said, just was on a different stage, as it were, rather than a theatrical one. But I think that put me in good stead, Neil, to do some of a magazine show that Martin Crow and Sky Sport took over from Free to Wear Television in 99. Um, he could see that I could host this magazine show being a little bit more flamboyant and, and not mind dressing up or going into character a little bit. And so you're right, for a lot of us, there is a, there's a, there is, um, a real dark time because living and doing your passion of playing sport at the highest level, in a way, the analogy we've spoken about in, in other platforms is that you've climbed your Everest in a way. You've actually got there and done that. So what's next? You know, um, I ended up doing a, a, a sports coordinator role for Rebel Sport in a commercial division of their setup. And I, I enjoyed that. It was quite good in a way because it got you more involved in the community and also behind a desk a little bit, uh, getting a little bit of computer skills, um, all of those sorts of things and interacting with people um, from a more, if you like, sort of corporate background and doing that within the sports industry. That helped me. And I did that for about a year and a half before then, of course, this was kicking and doing that cricket max. I talked about some commentary over weekends and it was more at night on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That cricket max that Crow had come up with with an American mate filled the void of Friday night football, Friday night rugby in New Zealand. Massive. So that was great. So again, seamlessly starting that from finishing playing at the beginning of 97 to doing some commentary at the end of 97 was great. Mixing it with that, that part-time corporate sports role um, until television New Zealand lost the free-to-air rights and it became Sky and so learning to do that uh, being alongside Smithy and Crowey uh, pretty hard taskmasters at time um, I found it a bit difficult I found them a bit intimidating at times uh, because you know you were so still young and in a way I could have been still playing the goal was to still be playing as a 32 33 year old but here I was now out of the game working and in getting into the media and the commentary side of it and having to learn in the deep end quickly um, was yeah quite challenging um but i also had those other interests as i said you know that other job early and then um yeah i found it quite difficult and i, and I really understand where a lot of the players they talk about the black dog uh, having depression um, finding it very difficult to cope and do that um you know a lot of asked about me writing a book and going down that rabbit hole my sister committed suicide in 05 um, and that really did put me on the back foot um found it very difficult. It was on antidepressants for 10 months. Um, I don't often share this in, in these sort of platforms, but 
Um, I think now that it's become a lot more open in the domain. John Kerwin was one of the big advocates. I mean, he got knighted for his role in mental health and depression, talking about it at length in New Zealand and being such an iconic all black. Um, it's just not talked about. You see ads here in Australia, uh, particularly in the NRL, uh, male dominated sports. And it's, you know, it's so tough and so blokey. And, you know, you don't speak about things where in your head, you're sort of suffering and, and feeling the emotions of not playing or it's getting on top of you and there's expectation and all those sort of things that go with it. So in a way, that's why I'm here in Australia. Uh, my, my sister took her life tragically in February in 05, but it also, I look at it now as a catalyst that I could come, I could come to Australia, lucky enough to, my wife and her contact, contacts living where we did, um, came and visited them like in 04 and 05 before we moved in October of 06. So I've been here since, you know, October 06. Um, and I think it's been a godsend for myself and my family uh, because we needed some hashtag sunshine back in my life. Um, and to do that, there's other coping mechanisms, whether it's meditation, you know, going down those rabbit holes and having uh, discussions with therapists. We were very fortunate with an elderly French woman here where I live. Um, she did a lot of marriage guidance counselling for Kim and I and some other Kiwi mates of ours who trekked over here and moved here. Um, so when I look at that from a post-playing days, um, you've got to find something that works for you. And I think that goes for male and female in this professional era of the 21st century where it's just be all and end all. And all of a sudden it can be taken away through an injury. Better youngsters come along. You've had your time. It's time to move on. And um, it's very confronting, no doubt. And so commentary work for me, I'm hugely grateful because I don't, I don't often do a lot of media in Australia. I tend to work overseas for me. And as people who watch this podcast know, I do the IPL, Pakistan Super League. I've done a bit of the Bangladesh Premier League. I do the Caribbean Premier League, uh, T10 in the UAE. So I, I derive my income on the road. I'm away a lot from Australia. Um, and I've been very blessed, Neil, to have family come up to Dubai and spend time with series there. Um, so I've been very fortunate that carving out of a niche of my style and vernacular that obviously irritates a lot of the older generation, um, that's a little too over the top for them. But with my thespian background and vernacular and mixing different parts of commentary styles, a bit of Austin Powers like, yeah, baby, that has disappeared. And this one needs an air hostess on it. It's gone miles. You know, that sort of style of commentary doesn't resonate with a lot of the old you know, older brigade that I love either irritating. Um, I don't mean to do it on purpose, but it just irritates them. And then, they, of course, social media platforms, whether it's Twitter, and can just chew you a new backside and you've got to be fixed. And I love it. And I just think it's not about them. It's about the new brigade. It's about the youth culture wanting to get into and watch the sport. So if you look at it, as I mentioned, finishing playing and a long-winded answer for you, <laughs> sorry, Neil, I have been, is that I think, in terms of the message to get across that's important is that um, you know you're trying to develop a bigger audience and whilst I was a salesman post playing days with Rebel Sport in that commercial division I think a lot of us commentators particularly in franchise T20 you're wanting younger audience to embrace the game that may not have grown up with it may not have played it at school but quite like what's going on and are trying to understand the nuances of it male and female and again, the female game, look how much the women's game has developed massively because of T20, a shorter, sharper 
punchier version of the game um, has allowed women's sport, I think, you know, to go through the stratosphere and will continue to do so. So I think very exciting times. Um, and these platforms doing this with you and, and, and other ones I've done through COVID, um, I think are just important for people to then say, you know, there are different strategies to coping with depression or down times or what other strategies do I look for um, to help me cope with this COVID time? This is a very difficult, challenging time because look, it is. I've been through quarantines, in the bubbles. Players are starting to have to deal with the bubble that does affect you mentally. That there is no doubt. Hey, you are one of the, the world's great commenta commentators, I've got to say. Do you have any tips for youngsters that want to kind of get into uh, into broadcasting, into commentary? Are there opportunities? I've spoken yeah. to this uh, with others as well, and it seems to be that more that you probably would have had to play the game. It's kind of there going that side of it. But just to kind of there get is. that dressing room feel, but are there other avenues in for ones that haven't played at the highest level? Yeah, well, you, I mean, the, the ones you look at now, it's something like Harsha Bodlane. You know, who never played even like you talk about even a first class level because you had guys like Mark Nicholas, great anchor, great host, played a lot of first class cricket, had a great career at Hampshire. Uh, the great Alan Wilkins, who played a lot of first class cricket for Glamorgan and Gloucester. Harsha Bogle didn't. Harsha Bogle is a broadcaster. Now, there's a lot of them that are broadcasters only, but even not even going to the old school and going to Loughborough or whatever and doing the broadcast degree uh, or diploma, whatever you call it. Um, there's the guy I work with who's a TV director, does a lot of the ICC World Cup events, Gavin Scavell at Brightness Media. Now, myself, him, and Gautam Bamani. Now, Gautam Bamani is another Harsha Bogle type character. Um, he commentates and has done lots of bits and pieces and platforms like this. And for Crick Buzz now, you've got Crick Info, Crick Buzz, and there's Crick and Jif um, out of Pakistan. Those guys, um, in terms of Gavin, uh, and has been leveraged through the subcontinent because you appreciate there's a lot of television networks that are on a minor level, but lots of them and lots of talent that want to develop and be able to do this and commentate at a smaller, different level or be able to simply look down the barrel of the camera and deliver a scenario around sport. And it may not just be cricket, different other sports. And particularly in India, India is massive, as we know. It's a huge market through the subcontinent. So... Dear Gav Scabell, um, and I encourage you um, in terms of sussing that, there is that through Brightness Media. If you go through Brightness Media, which is Gavin's site, um, there are there is, and we're about to start. I've talked about Slow Coach as a platform, uh, the di this digital age, and doing Zoom chat scenarios with cricket coaching or any coaching. There's about 90 coaches involved that is being developed in the UK and Australia for, for specific coaching, right? Gavin Scavell is doing this. Um, he's based in London, but it is more, and I'm just saying, and, that, and that's not um, being narrowing it down, but of course, a lot of the market is there in the subcontinent because there is, but that's not to say in the United Kingdom too, where you're based, that there's more of that. So Gavin trains and he's trained lots of sports people. He's trained Rampakash. He's trained um, other soccer players because of the punditry thing, studio thing. Um, that's massive, feeling confident of looking down the barrel, how you hold yourself, having got your hand in your pocket, your finger up your nose, you know, just doing this, how to hold the microphone. If they're on your left, then it's going to be in your left hand, it's in your right hand, they're on your right. Just other 
all those technical things that get done with Gavin and I helped from the commentary perspective and, and timings and coming in and out. Same with Gauss and Bamani. So we've, we, Gavin really has put that together, this initiative that if people want to learn to do some of this, that is, is about to happen. So it's only in its infancy and that's about to be developing. So um, again, another link on that, dive into that and go into Brightness Media. Uh, it's, it's, it, that was that, but it's, it, it's an involvement with Kingsdown, I think, is it Kingsdown TV might be as well, um, to look at that and to be able to go online and see what's going on. And then just to end on, how do you view the world game at present, talent out there, fan engagement, how do you see things moving forward as well? The fan engagement thing is going to be huge. And, and even let's, let's I'm not going to muck about here and dive in. You want to keep up with the digital age. I think there could be a stage and who knows where COVID's going and viruses mutating and, you know, kind of the conspiracies going on, whatever. But travel is not the same. And I don't think it will it ever be the same, Neil. Who knows? But I also think there could be a possibility that, you know, we could be commentating off the screen, off tube, as we call it. We could be commentating from where we are of a game going on overseas. And you could be doing that. And when you think about that, that could be the future of going forward because it saves either travel, hotel costs, per diems, your daily food thing, and then being at the stadium. All of those costs are huge for a production house. So I I really wonder if it's truly going to go that way where you may have to commentate because often you've got that already. Guys will fly to India and there'll be a different version of whether it's Hindi or the different dialects of Tamil, whatever, Bengali, sitting in a, in a, in a studio looking at the game and we're doing world feed. We're working on it at the game of an IPL, but there are other guys commentating, and I've seen it in the studios, where they'll be off, off tube commentating at doing that. So in terms of the global game, um, we're very blessed that we can go and still, like we've just done with the IPL and been at the Caribbean Premier League, where you can go to the ground, commentate there behind closed doors. Sad that there's no fans because of COVID, um, but we can still do our job being at the ground commentating in, in a biosecurity bubble and separate um, to, to be on top of the, the, the disease or the, the virus, is that we may not even be doing that. You know what I mean? And, and in coming years, because of digital and the strength of that and how it's developing so quickly, as I mentioned, we may be sitting, commentating from home, may not even have to leave your home, but still working on an IPL and Pommy and Bungwas in Johannesburg and Simon Dools in Hamilton and Ian Bishop's there in Trinidad and Tobago. And we're all on the same commentary and, and, and Harsh is leading it there and he's in Mumbai, right? And we could all be doing that. And we did that in a way um, during COVID, we had two of us on, the guys would take a rest, but they'd have two of us on to have turns and we would be like this, down the side of the screen, excuse me, the game would be, and we were commentating over old games, basically. So the CPL did that initiative. We commentated over old games um, and, had a, and, and were doing that old footage. So there's no reason why that can't be done live um, in that scenario where the technology will get sharper, be so much more slicker over digital that that could be the way to go, Neil. Um, if there is indeed still a hassle with travel and the virus and how it goes and does, you know, it get worse, does it get better, does it have seasonal scenarios? Um, 
you could be doing this from home. You know, I'm talking about of cricket and where the game's going. Do I also think, uh, like some of my other old, older colleagues, um, test cricket is, 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 is cricket is test cricket dying? Geez, I hope not. I just think maybe it just gets dressed up differently. And we've mentioned already in pink ball, four days of it rather than five. Does it get cut back to four? And just you're going to have to bowl more overs. Almost are you, bowl the same are, amount of are, you, are you a fan of that, or, or is that just an idea you're throwing out there? Because a lot of no, um, it's been talked about a bit. Then it caused, it caused a little bit of controversy with some pundits say, suggested. Yes. That. What are your views? Um, I remember, like I tell you, I remember um, at the beach cricket we had here when I first moved here, and, and Graham Gooch and, and Alan Border were signing bats there on the Gold Coast um, for the beach cricket. And, and they felt that even way back then, that's 2008. He said, don't be surprised because you used to have first-class cricket, which was three days, right, for a long time. Then it went to four because of test cricket being five. Well, you know, first-class cricket could always go back to three. What's wrong with test cricket going back to four? Because what the, in terms of cricket boards are about, it frees up quite a bit of time. You take that extra day off a test match and make it a four-day test match, which they often finish in four days, even sometimes three when it dominated, either spinners dominating. You see in New Zealand, the West Indies, they got run over. I mean, they, that feasibly could have possibly finished inside three days. It went a little bit into day four. So you look at it from that perspective. The game has moved forward because of T20, because of more shots being played. People get out. They're not the big scores. Whether that you say is there a subconscious mental thing these days, they just play too many shots and get out. Well, the game's sped up. The game has evolved and changed of test cricket when we played it, certainly in the 20th, late 20th century, boring draws of war of attrition, you know, maybe it's a wrong analogy, but, you know, in the trenches, you know, just grinding and, you know, going nowhere and it's just games going nowhere. So it had to move. If you want to survive and have an audience, I'm, yeah, definitely getting off the fence. I'm an advocate for four-day test cricket. I'm an advocate for pink ball, day going into night and, it's result driven. It's a different game now. It's not, so you're not changing too much. Are you changing the beauty of the red ball day game? Yeah, you can still play that, but I think it just needs to be four days and you need to condense the overs. And the players said, listen, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get in more than just 90 overs in a day. Because even it's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, you, know, you should be able to get 100 overs in and just push it through. Spinners, are you going to say, are the spinners are going to have more of a say, you have to bowl more overs of spin in the game of that. Well, you just get on with it. And you've already seen, Neil, that there are more test match specialist players rather than white ball specialists. You're still going to have those guys. And there's nothing wrong with it. They're just scoring at a quicker clip. You're asking guys to squeeze in a few more overs and not muck about so much. Jeez, I mean, you think about it. The drinks breaks. They've got eskies on the boundary. They've got cold towels. They've got 13th, 14th, 15th man coming up with towels. I mean, we never had that. And not saying it's woe as me. The games move forward in a much better way for you to survive, get electrolytes on board, boom, boom, get looked after, physios, you know, all of that sort of stuff on the park that can come and do it. You've got an entourage now that look after the players better and the sports science is so much more superior. So I'm an advocate for four-day test cricket, bit of pink ball, still a little red ball, no doubt about it. Keep the, keep the game simple. Keep those laws of the game that they're about and don't tinker too much with that. You're just shortening it. You're just saying, I'm sorry, we've got to get it done in four days and you're just going to have to bowl more overs and just get on with it. Well, Danny, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Fantastic coaching tips you've given in this piece. And also thank you very much for being so open and honest about everything.
Mm. Oh, and lovely. And I think if, if it helps someone out there and, and gives them maybe some other strategy to go and think about things, particularly down that one of, particularly that one of depression. Like I, I've delved into it a little bit over the years and people would like me to then put it into, into hard copy. Um, I'm just not quite ready. It's funny, I'm not ready at the moment. And I'm, and I'm actually quite busy tearing around, but I'm also thinking, well, you're in this bubble time, these quarantines, get your act together and do it, you know? Um, time will tell, we'll see. <laughs> So Neil Kagram, Cricket Last Stories, Danny Morrison, thank you.